Blog Talk Radio. Uh, uh, you hear me now? Not really. There we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of the Four Scenes Fire American Soccer Show, the 2020 MLS Cup Playoffs. Quarterfinal review show. Talk about those clubs that have won against uh, their opponents in the quarterfinals of this crazy, nutty, wacky, but fun uh, playoff situation. Join me right now to talk about Nashville SC, their huge win over Toronto FC. Uh, I have Mr. Drake Hills from the Tennessean, as he was there to uh, at least watch the match and talk about this crazy game. Drake, good evening, and how are you, sir? Yeah, Daniel, thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate it. Um, it's it's nice to be able to have a little bit of a review after obviously covering it in live time. So I'm feeling pretty good tonight, obviously going into the Thanksgiving holiday. But as you mentioned, you know, Nashville SC, They've got something, they've got some business to take care of as soon as the holiday ends. Absolutely. You know, we've seen this before in Major League Soccer. When Gary Smith took over the Colorado uh, Rapids many, many years ago, first year managing an MLS side, took them all the way to the MLS Cup final and beat FC Dallas um, in that final in extra time against Toronto. I have this funny feeling uh, Drake, that Gary Smith is going to do it again. Well, I mean, that, that's definitely – I'm going to keep that in my pocket and, and see if you're right. Uh, you know, that's not a team that wants to play Nashville right now. It, it's not a team – it's not a team in the East that is simply comfortable with being able to handle having to break down probably one of the thickest and one of the most stubborn spines. Uh, when you talk about Dex McCarty, uh, Anibal Godoy, and we all know about Walker Zimmerman. We all know he's MLS Defender of the Year and all that. But Dave Romney has, has had probably as good of a year. Um, he's not only uh, a good in defense, but you're talking about one of the best, you know, passers of the ball for a center back. And simply is just overshadowed a little bit by Walker Zimmerman. So, and you go back to that Toronto game, it's probably one of the best games you've seen from a rookie in Alistair Johnson. He was has struggled at times being able to play balls into the box, being able to be somewhat of a danger for Nashville going forward, having to provide some service into whether it's Daniel Rios, who's obviously scored the game winner against Toronto, or it's Jondo Cadiz, who started the match. He played one of his best matches and kind of equated himself with Dan Lovitz on the opposite side. So this team certainly has the tools and has the pieces but again, you know, you gotta, you can't make sure, you gotta make sure that you're not gonna perform the way you did against Columbus back in September, but also even against Toronto, giving up a lot of the goal chances and the scoring chances that they had. If you squander the same amount, my bet is that Columbus walks away with a win and a comfortable one at that. Oh, I agree with you there. And you said Dax McCarty, Alex Muwil also doing a job in midfield. But I have to say, 
Joe Willis in this game, you know, he started off as a backup for D.C. United uh, many years ago, back around the uh, early 2010s. But to see him really blossom into a starting goalkeeper and to keep Toronto away from the net, even in extra time, that was amazing goalkeeping from Joe Willis on how he was able to keep that ball out of the net, especially that crazy frenzy in their area. Right, right. You're talking about the end of the end of regulation. That was absolutely right. Um, and even going before that, uh, Nick DeLeon for Toronto had a nice chance. There was another um, shortly thereafter, after DeLeon squandered his chance from probably six yards out, a couple of minutes later, he's at the beginning of a cross. He puts the cross in from the left flank, puts it into the middle, and there's Willis right there. He sticks his arm out and is able to disconnect what would have been probably a connecting ball. Uh, Pozuelo was at, was at the end of that, I believe. And you just got to think, you know, you, you mentioned how Willis started his career out there with, with D.C. Um, before going to Houston. And you, you just it's hard to understand probably that, that Willis is having such a great year. I mean, you know, the most clean sheets in the regular season for, for any side and for any goalkeeper. But you got to think, I mean, Houston's <laughs> setup was completely different where obviously Houston, they didn't even have wingers tracked back. And you're talking about, I'm sure you know very well, Alex Moil is one of the best wingers when it comes to work rate, when it comes to tracking back and causing problems for whether it be wingers or even the fullbacks who are trying to get forward from the opposing team. And you take a look at the play-in round. Alex Moil was a pest on Rodolfo Pizarro. That was a guy who just came in off of international duty, Pizarro did, and he was probably had a lot more weight on him without Gonzalo Higuain in the side. Probably in the first 10 or 15 minutes, Alex Muil had more blue paint on his jersey than anyone, um, considering all the Titans, you know, Tennessee Titans uh, turf paint that was on the floor. He was getting his work in early. Uh, he did that again against Toronto, and so – you know, you're having these guys who are helping you out. And when I'm talking about Joe Willis here, you're having guys who are helping you out, not allowing so much service into the box. That's just a credit to, to, to Muil. That's a credit to Randall Leal. That's a credit to Dan Lovitz and to Alistair Johnson as well. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, how quickly this uh, Nashville SC side has really uh, gelled so quickly, so fluid, so fluidly, I should say, um, I have to say, it's Gary Smith, once again, who's got a lot of confidence in his starting 11, a lot of confidence in his bench players. Um, Mukhtar has been fantastic as well. And it's just like they're not even an expansion side. I know they had to go through the motions, starting off in NPSL, going on into USL Championship, and then coming into MLS. They've really done an amazing job of going through the motions, going through the different levels of American soccer, and getting into MLS in their expansion year, they don't even look like an expansion team. Well, I would suggest that Nashville actually took a fair amount of time, and I think that's the reason why a lot of national pundits, a lot of other teams, didn't really respect what Nashville had to offer going forward, going into the final third, because they did not have a connection from up and inside the middle, up top. I mean, Dominic Baji, he was struggling to be able to get on the end of crosses, get on the end of what it seemed to be a developing 
uh, attack on the wing, which is actually how Gary Smith likes to play. He likes to be able to go up, build from the back through the middle, and then he likes to have one of his central midfielders, whether it's Godoy or McCarty, play the ball forward, break a line, break the middle line, and get the ball out to Leal, get the ball out to, you know, whether it's David Akam on the other side or now it's Alex Mouille, or it's an advancing Dan Lovitz or Alistair Johnson who make the overlap. They make the cross into the, into the box, and that's how they want their goals. That's how Nashville C wants to play. And that wasn't necessarily clicking. Um, going back to, you know, you talked about getting their first win against Dallas. Um, that, that was a little bit of a, of a counterattack goal by David Akam to get that win. But even as late as, you know, mid-September, it was, there was a struggle. You know, going up against Inter-Miami in Fort Lauderdale, going up against Columbus Crew, a lot of these teams, you know, Nashville C was unable to have that process, you know, be successful. So now that you have Jean de Cadiz coming in from Benfica, you have an understanding with Leal, who probably has the best link-up play with Cadiz um, and has benefited from Cadiz's arrival. I think he and Mukhtar and Muil are starting to do a lot better job connecting with that striker. And I think that's the reason why Nashville C is not looking like an expansion team anymore. Yeah, I agree with you there. Just to see um, how everything's been working for uh, Gary Smith in Nashville, you know, just to see, uh, like I said, fluid motion, fluid attack, fluid defense. Everyone really knows their role. Everyone's coming in, doing their job. And now, like you said, you know, they had a great moment defeating Inter Miami uh, in the play, in, in the playing round. And now it looks like they're going to be a real threat moving forward in the uh, quarterfinals and now into the semifinals to see Nashville really working very well with everybody, you know, not just the players and the coaches, but I got to say that it, I would have to say that the, uh, um, the ownership group right now for Nashville has really loved what they've been watching. I mean, it's just been wonderful to see what Nashville is capable of doing, not worrying being an expansion side, just going forward and doing a job. Yeah, they have. They absolutely have. And you have Mike Jacobs, who definitely took a, a, an apple off of the, the sporting Kansas City tree, learning under Peter Vermes for a couple of years and being able to see how they spent their allocation money when they got it or was able to find some, some, some target allocation money to, to sign bigger players. I mean, he's learned from that. He's took, he's take, he, he, he grabbed that from sporting Kansas City, and he's brought that with himself to Nashville, and I think that's a part of the reason why you know, Nashville C didn't really spend a whole lot going into the season. Obviously, the pandemic affected what probably would have been the most, uh, I would say, probably attentive summer window. You probably would have seen maybe a, a shout or two saying, hey, look at Nashville C spending a little bit. That might have been the case, but because of the pandemic, you know, obviously fans and, and pundits alike had to wait to, to – to see the, the fall window, and that's when they got Jean de Cadiz. I mean, Mike Jacobs, a credit to him and making sure that you probably had the – you secured the best trade in MLS in Walker Zimmerman. 1.25 in allocation money sent the other way to LAFC. To a lot of folks, that's a lot of money. To me, that's a lot of money. But you take a look at what Walker has done. He's anchored a team that's had the third best in terms of total goals conceded in the league. You have the lowest 
uh, expected goals. You had the lowest average goals against. You had, and then, of course, Walker Zimmerman, MLS Defender of the Year. So, I mean, I think that's a great negotiation by Jacobs and his, his technical staff to get that deal over the wall. And obviously, Mayor John Ingram has had a, has had a have a finger in that as well, and Ian Air, chief executive. But if I could be critical for Nashville, I think, you know, you're going to definitely have to do something in terms of your depth. I think that's the next step. I think that what they need to be able to withstand a full season without a start and stop that we've seen in 2020 is to have some depth coming off the bench, to have some depth even at the striker position, although they've already signed John Cadiz on a loan deal. If they make that permanent, great. Do they believe in Daniel Rios? Probably. But I think they need a little bit more depth to make that next step forward to be a contender year in and year out. No, absolutely. They're going to have to make some shrewd signings, and they're really going to have to pay attention uh, to what's going to have to happen next year. But then again, you're going moving on to the next round. You're going on to the semifinals. And right now, as you've said, their next match will be on the road at the Columbus Crew. What is your concerns about this next matchup in the semifinals going on over on uh, November the 29th? I would say on the Nashville side, it's how much of an impact will the loss of Anibal Godoy be should he not be available for the second straight match. You're talking about one of the best destroyers um, and has done well playing next to Dax McCarty in that central defensive midfield tandem. Uh, He's been out with a hamstring. We'll see if he's going to, you know, be able to rehab and get back. Um, Brian Anunga did well in his in his spot at Toronto. And matter of fact, I think he hasn't really gotten the appreciation that maybe Alex Mouille or Randall Leal, Hani Muxar or Daniel Rios did. But he played he played he played spectacular. But I think that's something when you're talking about going from a uh, facing a Toronto side who you know Pozuelo was that was certainly not his best game. Uh, as an MVP candidate, that was not his best game against Nashville. Um, but even so, with a midfield like that, that probably wasn't at their best. And all of a sudden, the next the next round, you're going up against you know, Pedro Santos. Um, you're talking about Lucas Delarayan. You're, you're, you're talking you're talking a pretty solid midfield. Uh, obviously, Darlington Nagby in there as well. So we'll we'll see if he and Dex McCarty can can handle that. Uh, so I, I would say on the flip side, I think with Columbus, I think something that Nashville C need to keep in mind is <laughs> what is Jesse Zardes going to do? Is he going to be the Zardes who obviously around the time that these two teams played last, you know, he had scored four goals in three matches. Um, is he going to be that Zardes? Is he going to go on another, you know, goalless streak? Um, he was able to score against New York, obviously. So did Nagby. Um, so that's going to be interesting, you know, and it's obviously Santos scored as well. Um, that's going to be interesting to see if, if Zardes is going to be the, the guy who, you know, was, was troubling for, for Nashville. Um, so I think those are the two big points going into this match. Absolutely. Drake, listen, thank you very much for your time. I truly appreciate it. Good luck in the next uh, round, and uh, you have a good night, and be safe and uh, Stay safe uh, through this pandemic down there in Nashville, okay? Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it for having me on the show. I appreciate you having being on myself. Thank you so much. That's Drake Hills from the Tennessean covering Nashville SC. Joining me right now next online, 
Uh, it's been a while since we've had this man on, but you know what? New England Revolution have been really amazing in this run so far. Sean Donahue, New England Soccer Today, joins me on the wild and wacky 2-0 road victory as they took out the Supporters' Shield champion, Philadelphia Union. Sean, you know, talking about Bruce Arena, many people have said he's lost his touch. Many people believe that he should be not coaching anymore. What do you say about that with these last two playoff games that Bruce Arena has been, you know, in charge of the club? Yeah, I mean, going into the game – this weekend, I don't think I think there were very few people that would have predicted a Revolution victory, my, myself included. Philadelphia had the Revolution's number all year long. Uh, they played five times, won four of them, drew one. Um, so you know, I, I don't think anyone, you know, Bruce Arena had five chances to beat Philadelphia, didn't get any of them. So going into this game, it, it seemed like they were a team that had the Revolution's number more than anybody else. Um, but Bruce Arena finally found a formula to beat Philadelphia. Six time was the charm for the Revolution. Um, and he certainly showed that he still had a few tricks up his sleeve with that lineup, and the lineup that worked against Montreal as well, because they were hand- dealt a you know difficult hand um, in both of those games as far as the fullback situation went, with uh, Brandon By and, and Alexander Butner all being unavailable, um, and he kind of found a masterstroke to put in John Buchanan at right back. Um, really proved a, a huge problem for Philadelphia and a huge problem for Montreal, um, despite the fact that he'd never played there before at any at any point in his professional career. Um, just a, a very exciting win for the Revolution and a very surprising one, given what we saw during the regular season. I mean, I didn't expect two goals in a span of four minutes. I, that was just amazing to watch. And, you know, to have Adam Buxa come up big, and we all know how important, how important Carlos Heel is to the Revolution in midfield. I mean, just to have him back at this point in time was huge for both Bruce Arena and the Revs. Yeah, Carly Seal, I think, is the the key man for the Revolution, unquestionably. Uh, when Carly Seal isn't available or when he's not 100%, it's just a, a very different Revs team. And, you know, he was out for so much this season. The Revolution tried a lot of different things to try to replace him and, you know, some, you know, some, kinds of, some source of success. But um, I, I think they go from being a, a mediocre MLS team to a team that actually, you know, is a threat to go all the way to the MLS Cup when Carly Seal is back 100%. You saw it in this game with, with two assists setting up both goals. Um, and, you know, when him, Gustavo Bo, and Adam Buxter, the three designated players, are all on the same page, which we haven't really seen much this year, and a lot of that's been because of injuries and they haven't had the chance to, to build that chemistry. Um, but these past two games have been a lot closer to those three guys kind of finding a way to work together. Uh, even though Gustavo Bo, I think, kind of had a quiet game against Philadelphia, um, if Carly Seal is on his game, you know, they don't even necessarily need those guys to be at their best. Uh, it's just a completely different team with, with him out there. Um, and, you know, he makes a world of difference for this Revolution team. And if he can stay healthy, I think the sky's the limit for them in these playoffs. Were you surprised about Tejan Buchanan's uh, goal? Because I thought that was a very, very tight angle. I mean, I know he got on the inside of the far post, and he just splashed the side netting. I, I thought it was a very tight angle that he was able to score that goal, Buchanan. It, it was, and Tejan Buchanan, the, the improvement from him this season, uh, even from the start of the season and now, has been uh, one of the storylines of the revolution this year. Um, you know, he was a guy that early on in the season, I think people were questioning why he was seeing any minutes, and now he's become one of the, the key contributors for this revolution side. Uh, offensively, he's just been phenomenal and taken so many strides forward. His confidence in front of the goal, his confidence taking people on, uh, has been critical for the revolution. 
it's it's incredible what he's been able to do. Um, and, you know, certainly at right back, he did a fantastic job for the Revs. And on that goal, uh, you know, dribbled around two guys and snuck that ball on at a very tight angle. So it was a very impressive performance from him. And he's been uh, another guy that's become a huge factor in a revolution offense that going into the season, I think people wondered where his minutes were going to come from. Now, I wanted to ask you this. Did you expect to see the union? I mean, when the second half began, they looked lifeless. They looked like they were not even bothering to play. To me, it looked like they had a glass jaw in the entire second half of this matchup, and the Revolution could do whatever they wanted to do against the Union. Well, that's the surprising thing about this game, too. I think, you know, if you were to come up with a scenario on how the Revolution were going to win this game, uh, I don't think it was going to be with the, the level of comfortableness that they had in this one. Uh, I I was very surprised with kind of how flat the union were. Um, At the same time, I I do think that two weeks off between games uh, is a bad thing Uh, more often than not. I think, you know, teams often come out of two weeks less less so rested than than rusty. I think that was definitely the case for Philadelphia in this game. There's 16 days between games um, after, you know, what was a very comfortable victory over the Revolution in their last game. Um, whereas the Revolution had a chance to bounce back from that game, get a you know really big win over Montreal, and, and build some confidence that way, um, I think that definitely played an impact. Where you you know, usually expect that tight schedule to be a negative uh, compared to, to two weeks off, but I, I think for the Revolution it was a positive. They built some momentum. They you know put that that disappointing loss to Philadelphia behind them, and Philadelphia on the other hand came out flat-footed after 16 days off. Yeah, I agree with you there. I mean, that was really tough. I mean, you know, you're celebrating a Supporters' Shield title for the first time in your history, and then you get that uh, that most important two weeks off, and next thing you know, you just don't, you just can't show up. You don't even have a puncher's chance, sort of, uh, against the Revolution side. Um, you know, I gotta say that, you know, and I've always said this about Bruce Arena, you really got a game plan against him. You really have to. I mean, so many people already written him off. He's not worth it anymore. He's done as a coach, whether it be on the international level or on the club level. You know, he had his chance to maybe go to be a head coach on the, uh, you know, in a club and, you know, maybe in Europe. And uh, but the truth is, is that you can't really assume that you think he's dead and buried. You really got to make sure you game plan against him, and you really got to make sure because it's not just the players he brings over; it's his tactics. It's how he game plans. This is why he is still considered the best head coach in U.S. soccer. Now, granted, Bob Bradley can have that moniker too, but there's something about Bruce Arena that always has his players ready to go. And I've said this before, and even in the Open Cup match uh, against the Red Bulls last year in 2019, he just got in there. It's enough. Why is it enough? Because he will get the players to believe in themselves. Because he knew he didn't have the players that he needed. He knew that you can't you know, trust such and such and so-and-so. But if he can give those players enough of confidence to move forward, they will do enough to get you the full three points or the big win to move on into the next round of an Open Cup title. You know, and... Coming from a New England perspective, too, I think we're we're coming off of having seen Brad Friedel coach this team for a couple of years, and I think Brad Friedel was arguably one of the worst coaches in MLS history that I've seen. And then switching from him to Bruce Arena, it's just such night and day 
um, to actually have a competent head coach that has been there before um, and knows how to approach a difficult playoff game. You know, there was a lot of talk about, you know, the, the game has passed him by. Can he do it in 2020? Um, and I think even if you go back two weeks ago and you see the lineup and the tactics he played against Philadelphia in the final regular season game, um, I think there was there's some valid questions there. I didn't understand what Bruce Arena was doing in that last game. You know, he, he tried to play a 4-4-2 diamond that kind of matched what Philadelphia likes to do um, and put their best players out there rather than the guys that kind of fit that formation. He had Buchanan as, you know, more of a, a central midfielder almost based on the way Philadelphia was playing and, and Bunbury as well, and that didn't work at all. Um, but I, you know, I think he learned a lot from that game and learned that the way to beat Philadelphia is to, you know, play your game and find the, the best way, the best formation for the revolution rather than trying to, to fit some kind of formation to match what Philadelphia does because that clearly didn't work. Um, and I think he finally hit gold in this lineup that, you know, went out there against Philadelphia, which is just one change in the lineup that went out there against Montreal. And to, to me, that is a formula that can work against Orlando and can work going forward as well. No, I agree with you there too. And before we talk about your next matchup, uh, let's not forget uh, I, I know how much Revolution supporters did not like how Mike Burns was the sporting director of the club, made some bad decisions, made some bad signings, um, and you have Bruce Arena, who has complete control, complete control of uh, who comes in, who goes, tactics, formation. This is why you get a man that knows what he's doing and has done it for so long. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... It, again, the, both the coaching change and the technical director change were huge for the Revolution, and I think give Revolution fans a lot more confidence going forward. Uh, w- with that said, I, it's kind of fascinating to me to look at, um, you know, this Revolution lineup in this game and how many, you know, seven of their starters were super draft players, which is not something you see very often in MLS anymore. Um, so it's, it's, it's fascinating that they've been able to have that success in a lineup that, uh, a large part of was built through the super draft. And some of that goes back to even the Mike Burns days. Um, but their, you know, their, their entire back line uh, was super draft players for this game. And then a good chunk of their midfield was too, um, and, you know, and their goalkeeper. So uh, actually I think their goalkeeper was, was undrafted. So it's, it's pretty incredible um, that they've been able to build this team in a way that not many teams can build anymore. You know, you look at the revolution teams of 20 years ago, uh, when they had those success in the 2000s under Steve Nichol, and they built largely through the draft. Um, and, and, and somehow they've still been a team that, you know, yes, now they have that top caliber talent in Carly Seal and Gustavo Bo, and, you know, to a lesser extent, Adam Buxa. Uh, but the supporting cast is still largely super draft players. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's an advantage right now for New England going on the road at Orlando as you're going to take on Orlando City. Um Galisi, who got his second yellow in the uh, last match against New York City, I've seen the penalty round shootout, and also became uh, ejected with that red card because it was second yellow because his foot was not on the goal line during the penalty kicks in the fifth round. Terrible. Um, You got Brian Rowe coming in now uh, to start that match. Uh, Do you feel that's an advantage against Orlando City? Yeah, I, I think it does help. I mean, Brian Rowe is a good, experienced MLS goalkeeper, so I don't think it's as big of a drop-off to him as some other teams might have to their backup. Um, but certainly, you know, he's been a great goalkeeper, Peter Gaius, this year for them. Um, you know, he, he showed it in the, in the shootout before he got ejected. Uh, so I think, I think that is a, a help to the revolution. And I think um, the right back, too, Ron, also picked up a red card. 
Um, so they'll be a shorthanded team. Uh, and also, you know, it's worth mentioning that the Revolution have been a much better team on the road this season than they have at home. Um, and, you know, without fans in the stands, and I know Orlando, I think, has a you know, limited number of fans, um, the home field advantage becomes a lot less. Uh, and I also, with the way the Revolution play, uh, you know, historically they've been a team that's kind of thrived on the counterattack. Um, and I think that's benefited them when they played at Gillette Stadium on that turf, uh, where some teams that, you know, play nice, silky soccer um, are disrupted by the turf, not necessarily playing the same way grass does. Uh, whereas now the Revolution are a team that are comfortable playing in possession, are a team that can, you know, build their own attacks, don't have to rely on the counterattack. Um, and it almost benefits them to be playing in a place like Orlando, where there's a much nicer surface, um, you know, playing in a soccer-specific stadium. So I think the, the Revolution can go into that game with confidence. Orlando's going to be the favorites. They've been a hot team this year. Um, you know, at times they've looked really good. Um, but, you know, down two guys with red cards, this isn't a game that New England goes into which, with as much fear as I'd say they went into in, in Philadelphia as far as, you know, how the fan base looks at this game. No, I agree with you there. It's going to be very interesting to watch, and we'll see what happens. Uh, have you been? I know the pandemic's been ravaging all over the country, but you've been fine. You've been safe. Yeah, it's been tough. I've been I've been working from home since since March. Fortunately, I've been able to do that. But it's uh, it's been a, a, a very difficult and interesting <laughs> last several months going back to March. Uh, ho- hopefully, there's an end in sight with vaccines starting to, to to pop up. What a, what a crazy year. It really has been. Yeah, I agree. And hopefully we can get back over there to Gillette and uh, for next year. We'll see what happens. But listen, uh, everyone listen to uh, or read New England soccer today. Sean Donahue does a great job with it, along with everybody else and uh, Brian O'Connell as well. Uh, Sean, you have a good night. Thank you so much. Be careful. Be safe. And I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, Daniel. You too. All right. Sean Donahue, New England soccer today. Uh, talking about the Revolution's win. How about that crazy, nutty, you want to talk about crazy, nutty shootouts in Orlando? How about the one that Dallas had to go all the way to Portland, Oregon, to take on and take out the Portland Timbers? Join me from Big D Soccer, SB Nation colleague Scott Henney joins me. Scotty, um, you know, you can definitely say that regulation was really nothing to sneeze at, even though it was nothing much going on. But when that big goal was scored in second half stoppage time for uh, FC Dallas, you had to go to a shootout and you had to do it big. It was uh, a game for the ages. Definitely. Um, put aside the fact that it was, you know, nearly midnight here in here in Dallas. Um, I'm certainly glad I stayed up to watch it. Uh, it was a, a heck of a game, really, you know, a clinic of, of, of a penalty shootout. And honestly, you know, a place where FC Dallas wouldn't have expected themselves to be, you know, just 10 minutes shy of the final whistle. Oh, yeah, I know. I, I, it was amazing to watch. I couldn't believe what I was watching. I couldn't believe what was in front of me. Um, obviously, when Jorge Villafania uh, who has been a revelation since the original Chivas USA days, uh, Sueño, MLS Sueño back in those days in the 82nd minute, puts that one in, 1-0. One Obviously, you're hoping and praying that you can get that equalizer as quickly as, as possible. You get into second half stoppage time. Ricardo Pepe, what a hero he showed to be in this one. Absolutely. You know, I, I realized after the game, 
Ricardo Pepe was born the same year Diego Valeri started playing soccer. So that gives you an idea of just how young he is to be able to rise to the occasion in the 85th minute, uh, net a game winner, you know, follow up his own shot, uh, first career playoff goal, third goal in the season um, to vault FC Dallas, you know, into a chance to, to push that game to extra time. And then finally in, in the penalties was just an incredible moment for him, for the team, and just for a club that prides itself on a homegrown system. What does that say to you when you're seeing clubs, you know, like, like yourself, FC Dallas, the New York Red Bulls, Real Salt Lake, you're seeing the, the fruits of your labor having these clubs in USL either championship. I know your club's in League One, the North Texas SC, um, and they won the inaugural championship. When you're seeing these clubs, Red Bulls to um, Real Monarchs, they're winning titles in the USL leagues. What does that say to you, and what type of badge of honor does that mean, not just for the club, but, you know, you've been re- reporting on this club for such a long period of time, and every other fan that says, hey, look, we've got the future of our club playing right here. And let's not forget, Reggie Cannon, of course, grew up through the FC Dallas um, Academy system. He is on the national team now for the, for the U.S. Mm-hmm. soccer. What does that mean for you when you see, you know, these – types of players really coming in with the uh, talent and the technical ability that they're able to display out there in MLS. Yeah, I think it really shows that the fruits of the club's labors have paid off. And, you know, even if it doesn't pay off in terms of, you know, flashy, you know, multimillion dollar spendings, if it doesn't pay off in terms of guys who stay with the club for their entire careers, you know, some guys have the part of the club, at the academy level, like Weston McKinney, some guys have played with FC Dallas for a while and then departed, like Reggie Cannon, and are finding success in in Europe. And then there's some guys like Ricardo Pepe who have played under Lucci as, as a youth player, and then are playing playing under him on the senior level and are winning playoff games. It, it shows that there is true value in investing in your youth, in in playing sort of the long the long game, and in a in a league that really finds more talent at the youth level than perhaps through drafts and and kind of the more typical, you know, American sports ways of, of finding talent. It's a testament to sticking with an idea and seeing it out over a number of number of knowing that in the long run, it'll bring you success at a, a value that you can then get a, a return on once those players, you know, do go to Europe and, and have those big money transfer fees. So Jimmy Maurer, of course, uh, went through uh, his time in the original, uh, excuse me, the uh, the uh, second coming of the NESL, and then of course mm-hmm. was bouncing around as a goalkeeper. Uh, you have him on there as your starting goalkeeper. We know what happened to Jesse Gonzalez, obviously, and he comes up big in this one. You know, seven saves out of eight shots on goal, um, huge saves. In both regulation and extra time, there's nothing you can do about that opening goal from Portland. But still, though, you know, whenever you get a journeyman goalkeeper, I mean, it's really huge to have him come up big in one of the most important playoff games so far. You know, in this uh, in this time in the playoffs. Yeah, I think it was definitely a question going into the year. I think once everyone kind of understood that the club's time with with, with Jesse was going to be coming to an end, that everyone was looking to Jimmy as super sure if he'd be able to fill the role that Jesse had played 
um, fairly well and, and was really starting to kind of accelerate his career in the last couple of years. But he's come in and done a terrific job. The, you know, the club has got the fourth best uh, defensive record in the in the league, and it's been a club that historically has relied on scoring goals, not you know winning shutouts. But Jimmy has made some incredible saves, and obviously none bigger than that save on the 15th kick of, of penalty kicks. Now we go to the penalty kicks, and it's been uh, you know scoring after scoring after scoring. You're going through seven rounds. Everyone's been converting their chances on the spot. And then you get to that eighth round. And who scored that opening goal in this match against Dallas? Of course, Jorge Villafania. What did you think Maurer saw? that he was able to read Viafania correctly and made the big save. It was interesting on the broadcast, they're talking about, you know, Viafania obviously was involved in that double post uh, kick from 2015 and how in that penalty shootout, he went to his left. And in, in this shootout, obviously he went to the right. And, you know, I'm not sure how much, uh, you know, how much Maurer had, you know, instruction on which way to go. I think really it's just a, in that penalty shot, you were just waiting for someone to blink, right? And and both clubs through the first seven rounds did not. And I think really just the small advantage was that FC Dallas won that coin toss, got to go first. And so as long as they made their kicks, the pressure was going to be constantly on Portland. And I think Maurer, not you know not having the entire game sitting on his shoulders, can just play that that kick, play those kicks um, in a more you know low pressure scenario, just like you you do in training. And I think that. You know, just you do something seven or eight times, the odds of you winning it at one point when it's a 50-50 shot, they're pretty high. And I think ultimately it was just a battle of two clubs and a the, the mental demeanor of the, both those teams just seeing who would break first. And unfortunately, that was Portland. Yes, it was. And that's a good luck and a good thing to see that happen. Emma, now you can correct me if I'm wrong or if I butchered his name, even his first name, uh, Ima Tumasi. Yeah, that's pretty much it. There you go. Ima Tumasi, uh, he gets the big game winner on the penalty kicks, and it's 8-7 in the penalty kick shootout, 1-1 after regulation and extra time. And, of course, FC Dallas celebrates at Providence Park. Um, That must have been uh, the biggest lift off of their shoulders in a very, very long time, the way that FC Dallas was able. I mean, we know that they've had – uh, that one big year, they won both the Supporters' Shield and the U.S. Open Cup. That was huge for FC Dallas. We know how important the Open Cup has been to FC Dallas when they were the burn. They first won it back in 1997 over then-defending champions D.C. United. This must have been the biggest victory in the history of the club for a very, very long time. Maybe I don't want to go too far. I was gonna, Maybe I was going to say Oscar Pereja when he was managing Dallas at the time before Lucci took over. How do you think Lucci was from uh, a distance at his technical area? Because you kind of think, you know, this is his opportunity. This is a big opportunity. I mean, since they were removed from the MLS's back tournament because of the whole uh, pandemic that uh, infected the team. Yeah, you know, there were lots of questions, obviously, for the team on how they would respond to last year's playoff loss at Seattle. Obviously, a game that they... Um, just, you know, frankly, played their butts off and, and obviously gave Seattle their best test of that entire MLS Cup run and really had the chance to win it, you know, had, 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 you know if, if uh, Brian Acosta sees uh, Santiago Mascara on a, on a breakaway late in that game. But I think 
um, for a for a very uh, I guess hesitant start to, to that game, you know, FC Dallas really really played back on their heels and really allowed Portland to p- dictate possession, which is not what Portland normally does. Um, I have to give credit to Lucci for making vital subs in the second half. The first one being uh, obviously bringing on Tanner Testman in the 60th minute. Testman, you know, just a 19 year old guy, his first year playing full minutes with with, a, with the first team, and he really was able to dictate the match. He was able to handle the ball and, and connect the defense to the offense in a way that um, that Andres Ricarte wasn't able to do for the first half of the game. Um, and, and so he subs out Ricarte. Uh, Testman comes in and kind of owns the offense. Then obviously he brings in Pepe in the 80th minute, and he ends up being, you know, scoring the game, the game tire goal, then obviously, you know, gets, gets the club extra time. And so I think for all of the – hesitancy that Lucci had the team play with the first half. He made some adjustments in the second half, adapted to what Portland was doing, and then obviously made the crucial subs. And that's, that's what coaches are, are judged by, is how they can change a game during the game. I think Lucci passed that test on uh, Sunday night. Yeah, I agree with you there. And uh, I think that's the biggest test I think he's passed so far. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I just really think that FC Dallas uh, came up big. Uh, you know, Giovanni Severese Excellent head coach. You really got a game plan for how you got to attack his side. And, um, I mean, it looked like it was going to be a a late one to end the night, but you guys got a later one in second half stoppage time, and all you did was wait for the uh, penalty kick shootout, and you were able to get the big stop at the right time and winning the whole thing. So the next round for FC Dallas right now is going to be on the road at the Seattle Sounders, uh, do you feel that uh, FC Dallas is looking for some form of revenge from last year's playoffs, or do you just say, you know what, we're not going to worry about that, we got to play our game, and we just got to go forward here? It's a great question. I think, you know, you could equally part say that they might have, you know, avenged that in the first round, you know, w- winning at Portland, an equally tough place to, to play, but you definitely, you know, there's always going to be that part of, of your mind that says, we have the chance to beat the team that beat us last year and even more so a team that, you know, is fully in the driver's seat to win the MLS cup. You know, they were decisive over LAFC that attacking front three is so potent. And so there's a huge chance to play a spoiler here to Seattle's party on the road. And I think there's no way that's not in the back of FC Dallas's mind. The, 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 you know, the question really is how they attack the game. Do they, you know, wait back for the game and try to eke out, you know, a, a late goal or push the game to extra time, or do they go at Seattle and try to, you know, give them a taste of their own medicine? I think Lucci will be, you know, if the first round game was a, a chance to see Lucci kind of in action, his tactical prowess, this game is going to be even more so because of the fact that Seattle is coming in hot, but FC Dallas, you know, there's so much momentum after that game, uh, you know, teams like that are forged in, in tough competition like that. And so I think there's, there's definitely something to be said about, um, FC Dallas continuing to get the chance to play spoiler here, you know, some, similar to, to Nashville on the, east, on the east side, and, you know, really, really make some noise uh, in Seattle. Yeah, I agree there, too. What was that like? I mean, you and Nashville had to go through basically the same situation. You guys were playing two games against each other down at uh, Toyota Park and, uh, excuse me, Toyota Stadium, and uh, you go from like I said, you've been kicked out of the MLS's back tournament uh, to restart the seasons, and then you start off with those two games, and look where you guys are now. Nashville goes to the East and is uh, right now is like where Dallas is, semifinals. I mean, this mm-hmm. is probably 
the biggest uh, revelation and uh, probably a bigger story than normal uh, in MLS this uh, this time around. Definitely. I mean, I feel like FC Dallas Nashville must have played 15 times this year just because, you know, with, with the number of games played, you know, they played four times, um, like you said, two early on and two later in the year. And really, Nashville had FC Dallas's number for the first three matches. Uh, FC Dallas did not score a goal in any of those first three games and finally was able to, to best them, I believe, uh, 3-1 in, in one of the last games of the year uh, at home. And Really, you know, Nashville has built their squad uh, perfectly as an expansion team, right? They, they focus on defense first and, you know, be, being able to have just enough offense to win those games 1-0, 2-1. And now they're actually starting to get a little, a little more offensive ability, you know, scoring three goals in their first in their first uh, playoff game and then besting Toronto. And so I think there's a plenty of, uh, uh, of stuff to be said about how both these teams have very abnormal seasons amidst a, an overall abnormal year but are, are almost able to be, you know, forged through that fire of, you know, a, a little bit of beginning season woes and are finally hitting their marks now um, in a way that maybe other clubs uh, didn't because they had a chance to play in the MLS back tournament. Yeah, absolutely. Scotty, I'll talk to you later. Uh, have a good night. Take care so long and bye-bye for now. Take care, Daniel. Thank you. All right, no problem. Scott Henney, Big D Soccer. Here, SB Nation colleague talking about FC Dallas's big win over um, over a huge, huge victory over the Portland Timbers. It's not that hard. It's not that difficult because once again, if you got a good game plan, and then you need a little luck as well. We all admit that. So uh, you know, once again, you just gotta find a way. Just find a way to go out and get a huge, huge win and just go on and move forward. So that's all you got to do. And as we're going to try to uh, get on the show here, because we are got to get a good friend who has been seeing a lot of fantastic soccer moving forward. And, of course, we know him, I know him, you know him. Good friend of mine from my Champion Soccer Radio Network days as we are getting ready uh, to talk to him about uh, this huge victory. Of course, that also went to a penalty kick shootout. And that is, of course, from uh, originally down the byline, of course, with uh, Blue Testament. My good buddy uh, Mike Kuhn joins me tonight. 3-3 in regulation through extra time. And then the big victory in the penalty kick shootout. Uh, CUNY, I have to admit, and I want to say this because I I can only tell you this because we're both basically on the same page, but I'm not saying I thought Tim Melia was washed up, but what he did in the penalty kick shootout was amazing, and he proved to me he still got it. I know he's probably a little older than normal. He has that Dick Clark syndrome. But to me, Tim Milia is still one of the best goalkeepers in this league. No, I mean, he he, he is still one of the best goalkeepers in the league. I think um, r- rumors of his de- demise, I guess, have been greatly exaggerated. I think part of the issue for him last year and even at times this year 
has just been a struggle with the with the defense in front of him basically uh, i think that part of the team has been in transition basically and i think melia has suffered a bit for it but i think melia when when it comes down to it is still one of the best goalkeepers in the league and as he proved in the shootout arguably the best penalty kick stopper in league history Oh yeah, three in a row, three in a freaking row. How he was able well, to stop San Jose was unbelievable in the kick, in, the, in the shootout. Yeah, well, let, let's also not forget. I mean, the, in all the way back in the MLS's back tournament in uh, uh, against Vancouver in the shootout, he stopped two of their four. So I mean, it, it's it's not like this is some it's not like it's a new thing for him he he consistently does it i was looking at some of the stats that i have and if you count shootouts in also in the open cup and penalty kicks in league play and stuff he's he's saved or teams have missed 22 of 46 penalty kicks against him so some, that's like 48 42 somewhere in the 40% range uh, of penalty kicks that he faces don't end up in the net, which is an insanely high number for for a goalkeeper. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I I just gotta say, it, it's just to see him play the way he does in net. It's still, um, I mean, I know he'll have his good days and his bad days. That's an obvious thing. But still, though, when you see him on his game, he's just impossible to beat. I mean, I can't believe the uh, the six goals that were scored. And, of course, half of them were from San Jose. The other half were from Kansas City. I just when you're down two goals to one after Roger makes, you know, the opening goal in the fourth minute, and then you see Carlos Fierro making it 1-1, Shea Salinas 2-1 in the 34th minute, and then you get to halftime. You know, what did you, what was in your mind or what do you think was in their mind or even Peter Vermees' mind about, you know, getting to halftime and trying to make adjustments? I mean, in my mind, it we looked really, really good the first 15 minutes. And then it's almost like we got away from our initial game plan. And, uh, and at that point, San Jose started taking over the game, basically. I... I didn't doubt that we were in the game. I mean, um, not just from Kansas City's aspect, but also no offense to San Jose, but given their track record this season, you can score on them. They will allow goals, and you can find opportunities to to score on them. So I knew we would have our chances in the second half. I knew that they would be there. It was just a matter going to be a matter of whether whether Kansas City could put them away without uh, without Polito on the field. And I mean, sure enough, basically carbon copy of the of the first half. In the first four or five minutes, uh, Elie got the got the equalizer, and then it was just it, it was back to square one, basically. Yeah, I agree with you there. And then of course, uh, second half, Kansas City took over. Got you got yourself those two goals. Uh, I mean, look, I've you know I've you know you know completely uh, love how Gianluca Busio plays for Kansas City. 
I know he would come off the bench a lot. Um, he would score some timely goals. He's just unbelievably gifted, technically sound, love how he plays. And he gets that big goal to make it 3-2 in second half stoppage time. I mean, this kid, has he now officially grown up and become part of the starting 11, or is he still coming off the bench? I mean, at, at this point, he's, he's played himself into, into the 11. I mean, um, Vermes has said uh, throughout this season that uh, Busio's playing so well that he has to find a spot for him on the field in, in the starting lineup. I mean, that's why Busio's play. He, he's played the six, he's played the eight, he's played the 10, he's played out on the wing for us. So, I mean, Vermi, he, he's played well enough that Vermes has basically said, I need him on the field no matter what. And he's good enough that I can rotate him through three, four different positions on the field and he will still have an impact on the game. So Busio is absolutely at the point where he he needs to be on the field starting in some capacity. See, this is the thing I didn't like when he was on the under-17 World Cup team, because Rafael Wicke did not use him properly at all, and, the, and our kids went three and out uh, in the group stage in Brazil for the under-17 World Cup last year. I thought, you know, Wicke basically used him in a detrimental way. I didn't think he used him up to his strengths, and that's why you didn't see after Busio scored the opening goal, uh, in the first match of the group stage, and they lost. I was really upset. I was upset as I'm thinking to myself, why is why is Wiki not using him properly? He really got me mad. And even though he came to play uh, at Coach Chicago, still though, I just, you know, who the hell is this? Why is this guy a head coach of the Fire when he didn't do anything for the under 17s? I mean, I. I don't fully disagree. I mean, he, I think, I don't think Wiki did a, did a great job with some teams, but at the same time, I think Busio has grown up so much, especially this year. I mean, one of the big, big knocks on him was his, his defensive work rate and his, his uh, defensive responsibilities. And the time that he spent uh, filling in for Ilya in the six for us, uh, he, it, I believe he's made comments about how that kind of opened his eyes to, to the uh, defensive responsibilities. And th- with all those responsibilities that came to him playing that position for Kansas City, he, he, he had to grow his game. And I think you've seen throughout this season him continually grow and progress at, at a higher rate than he has at any other point in his career with Kansas City up to now. Yeah, I agree with you there, and uh, we'll see what happens further on. I mean, is he in line for the uh, Olympic team at all, or not yet? I don't know if he's in line for the Olympic team. I, I'm struggling to remember. Is there a U20 World Cup this sum- coming summer? Because I feel like there's a U20 uh, there World might Cup be. coming up too. Yeah, I think so, there might be. I have to double check, but I think there might be. If not, I, not. It might be either – I think it has to be next year because 2022 is the World Cup. So we got to take a look, though. I'll, I'll take a look a little bit uh, later next time yeah, and we'll so, talk about so it. But I, mean, I agree with yeah. you. But I, but I agree with you. He, I think he should make the under-20 World Cup team or at least the qualification uh, tournament for CONCACAF. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, especially if he's – if it's at the point where uh, he's still in Kansas City. Not, not that there are any – 
new rumors, but I mean, there are always rumors about him and the fact that he has an Italian passport makes it easy to move if and when uh, a an attractive offer does come into Kansas City. But I mean, I I think he I think he will have some 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 work with some U.S. team this summer. I guess would be the be the best way to. That would be the best way to put it, probably, right? Because who knows how many other yeah. different competitions they're going to have to deal with next summer. Yeah, that's true. And then, um, of course, Wondolowski made it 3-3, but that was the end of it. And we already talked about Kansas City moving on, going 3-0 in the shootout. Amelia, just, he's just still unbelievable. I can't believe he's still going on strong there. But the next round, semifinals, and it's going to be um, – I don't know if it'll be a difficult matchup, but I will say that Minnesota United FC is a team that you cannot go past. I know you. I know Kansas City wants to take on Seattle or Dallas. We all know that, but I'll be honest with you. Minnesota can be very tricky, and I think this is going to be the trickiest setup right now because you're going to host them, but you never know. They could really pull out a, a fast one on you guys. No, and and I don't think I mean we've faced Minnesota uh, enough over the recent past to to not no not to look past them and at the same time we've played them three I think t- yeah three times because one didn't actually get played three times this season so I mean we've we we've seen enough of each other that each team knows what what the other team is all about. The big question for for sporting will basically come down to the the health of Alan Polito and uh, Gotti Kinda. I mean, Kinda came off the bench against San Jose, but if he's ready to go, I think he's in the starting eleven. And then it all comes down to to uh, Polito. If he can go, if Alan Polito is sporting, will go as far as they can get with Alan Polito. Basically, at this point, um, they're doing they've done well without him, but they're just at another level attacking-wise when Polito is out on the field. Yeah, I agree with you there. We'll see what happens. How has Polito been without injury, though? Has he fit in well with Kansas City? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's uh, he, he's uh, seven goals, if you count the one he also scored in the uh, knockout round of MLS's back, and five assists. So, I mean, he, he's consistently being involved in the play, whether dropping back into midfield to get the ball, setting people up or scoring them himself. So he is absolutely fitting in well with the team. Great to hear. All right, CUNY. Thank you very much for coming in tonight. Hope to catch you again uh, sometime soon. You have a good night. Stay strong and safe with the pandemic. Okay. Will do. You too, Daniel. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. You have a good night. You too. Thanks. Mike Kuhn uh, from the Blue Testament, SB Nation colleague, and I've been a colleague for a long, long time, talking about Sporting Kansas City's win. Joining me now, the one and only, from Dunord website, Bruce McGuire, Minnesota United FC, with a big 3-0 victory over the Colorado Rapids, who, of course, advanced to the playoffs through the points-per-game stat that MLS allowed for this year for playoff positioning. Bruce, um, Minnesota has come up big uh, first playoff win, I understand, uh, history-making for the club. That must have been a pretty good matchup 
for Minnesota to get the big victory and move on to the next round? Well, first off, greetings, Daniel, and thanks for having me on. The Minnesota United win was a little bit, well, the offense was phenomenal. They, they, they have really been clicking the last month or so. The, the defense was kind of lucky, if I could use that word. Colorado had their chances, and they just could not capitalize at all, where Minnesota was ruthless in the attack. While you had a, a two teams who have met, oh, I don't know, five, six, seven times now, maybe ten times, and it's always close. This is the first game between the two teams that's been three goals. So, yeah, it was precedent-setting, and getting the first MLS playoff victory was huge, and it's like a monkey off your back. How good was Kevin Molino in this one? I know he scored two goals. He opened the scoring. He closed the scoring. I mean, Kevin Molino, for me, has always been a question mark. We knew he has talent. We know he's got great technical ability. It's always what's going on upstairs in the noggin. That's the biggest question mark about Kevin Molino. And in this one, to me, like you said, they were ruthless in the attack. And he finally, I think he finally showed why he's such an important player for Minnesota. And, of course, to Adrian Heath as well. Yeah, he, he's always had those great touches, those great skills, that great vision as an attacking offensive player. And he's now got a couple of guys around him to team up with that they can all do it together. It's, it reminds me a little bit of when I was a kid growing up and we'd practice basketball and we'd do these weaves up and down the floor with three-man three weave, we would call it. And you'd pass the ball and you'd cut behind the guy and you'd cut to the middle and, you know, you'd just go up and down the floor. And between him, Robin Lud, and Emmanuel Reynoso, the three of them have just been you know, turning teams inside out with their movement, with their connectability, um, and they read each other better and better and better every week. Um, Reynoso has only been with Minnesota since, I don't know, August 1st, something like that, maybe Mm -hmm. maybe late July. Mm -hmm. I mean, post-tournament. And, you know, he's got the the, the most amount of – assists per minute played of anyone in MLS. And I know it's a short window. It's a short, it's a short, you know, pool of numbers to look at, but the second best was Sebastian Blanco from the Timbers and he got injured and hasn't played the second half of the season. But Reynoso's number one at one assist every 118 minutes. And then Blanco was at every 133 minutes. And then the real stars of the league, like um, Pozuelo in, in, Toronto and Valeri in with the Timbers, those guys are in the 150 to 160 minutes range. And Reynoso's at every 118. And then against Colorado, he set up all three goals. So there's something that clicks, you know, with Molino. It, the fans here love him and are frustrated with him. His defensive effort is weak. He is one of the softest MLS players I've ever seen going for a 50-50 ball. Um, he pulls out of them so often, it's crazy. And, you know, he, he's, he's 
you can tell that he has stepped up his intensity due to guys like Reynoso, who run so hard, play so hard, both ends of the field, never give up on a ball. And you can see that that has affected Molino somewhat, and that can only benefit him and the team. No, absolutely. Uh, I got to say, having all three assists in this one in the playoffs by Reynoso, like you just said, that's amazing to see someone like that having the motor to be in perfect position to make an amazing cross, an amazing pass, and it goes straight to the guy who's going to bury it in the back of the net. I mean, to me, that, that's an incredible rate there, uh, Bruce. Uh, just to see a guy like that be very strong with the ball. You had, before Reynoso arrived in Minnesota, the, the real strong strategy of this team was get the fullbacks up the field and whip in crosses. They just did it over and over and over and over again. Since Reynoso has showed up, they bring the ball into the center of the field. They've got Robin Lode moved from the left to the right, which is where he's always played in his whole career, and he can cut inside. He's got a really great left foot, and it allows Molino the ability to get underneath defenses where, you know, you get the line between the defensive midfielder and the center back, and there's always that little gap right there. And if you get guys like Molino who can run that gap and then make the diagonal cuts, he's got guys who can get him the ball. Speaking about Robin Lowe, and I know he's been doing very well for the club, but do you think he's finally coming into his own? Uh, we all know what Christian Ramirez did for Minnesota back in the uh, NESL days up till now being an MLS. I mean, do you think he was the one player that was missing for the attack for Minnesota? Or do you think he was just, you know, playing um, withdrawn just a little bit when Ramirez was playing for the club? No, it's 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 all about where the players have been positioned on the field. Um, okay. Ramirez and Lowe didn't overlap; they were there at different times. But just the other mm-hmm. day in the Athletic, Jeff Reuter interviewed Adrian Heath, the Minnesota head coach, and he said the perfect forward for this team right now, out of all the forwards they've had in MLS, would be Christian Ramirez, which is pretty ironic. Um, but they've the last two games they've scored six goals they've given up none and they have played with a false nine putting Robin Lode up top. Robin Lode's best spot is on the right side of midfield. That's his primo spot, and that's even as the false nine he's drifting out to that right side. He's spending his whole game out there, and you know for some bizarre reason for his first year in MLS, Adrian Heath only played Robin Lode on the left side of midfield. And he was very unproductive, you know, and you go look at his stats from all the teams he's played on before, and he would play every single game on the right side of midfield. You look at where he plays for Finland, he plays on the right side of midfield. And for whatever reason, Adrian Heath had it in his head that he had to play him on the left. As soon as he moved him to the right, which was during the Orlando tournament, the guy just took off. His stats have been great. His productivity is great. His movement is great. It's almost like they took the shackles off him finally. And for some bizarre reason, Adrian Heath still goes to the press over and over and says, nobody believed in Robin Lode. Only I did. All you people spit on him. You said bad things about him. You, you were awful to him. He didn't deserve any of it. 
And it's like, dude, you were playing him out of position the whole time. It's all on you, buddy. It's all on you. Do not blame the journalists and the fans of this team. There's always the good of Adrian. Uh Uh-huh. Robin Lewis as the false nine has been great for two games in a row. I don't expect him to play anywhere else against Kansas City either. Yeah, I agree with you there. I was going to say, uh, there's the good Adrian Heath and there's the bad Adrian Heath. And he's got to realize when the bad comes in, you've got to wipe that out to put him back in the good. So <laughs> I have to say, though, his post-match comments on Fox Sports North has always been a, a treat to listen to because it's got a quick – it's the 90th minute. Honey, get the popcorn. We're going to wait for the post-match presser. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, he and I don't really see eye to eye. You know, I was not a fan of him ah. before. I remember when he coached the um, – the Austin Aztecs, and then he moved over to Orlando. And, yes, he definitely had some success in Orlando. And and then he came yep. up to MLS with Orlando. And I, I I just I don't want to say too much else because the team is really on a nice roll, and they're doing really good. Yeah. And I'm really happy, especially for the fans who have really needed this. Uh, Minnesota sports teams have really struggled the last several years, so it's really nice that they got the win in the playoffs, and that was just a great thing. So I, I don't want to take it beyond them. I certainly have nothing personally against the guy, you know. I, I just disagree right. with how he runs the team. That's all there is to it, you know. That's it. Sometimes a little disagreement goes a long way, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know it challenges me to learn more, you know. And so yep, hopefully, yep. you know, he's hopefully Adrian Heath is always growing, always updating, always getting better. Um, I love that. But they're really going to have to snap this defense into some better shape to go down to go down to Kansas City where they're 0 for 5 in MLS. Yeah, I think I they have there, one goal be- scored, 11 allowed. Yeah, it's a big task. But you know what? If there's a oh, time yeah. to do it, this is the time. This is the time to do it. Oh, exactly. And here's the thing, and, and I had Mike Kuhn on from Kansas City, and I asked him about, you know, Melia. And I think the one thing that Minnesota's <laughs> got to avoid, you got to avoid penalty kicks. I mean, yeah. you know, Tim, Tim Melia has been sensational in the penalty kick shootout, making all these big stops. And I feel, and I'm not saying, you know, don't watch the damn thing, but, you know, I'm being honest with you. You know, if you go to penalty kicks, you've got to really – I mean, Minnesota has got to really fool Melia to get one or at least to get the amount of kicks past them to move on to the to the conference final, especially when you've got uh, Kai Kamara coming off the bench or maybe he'll go out and start, you don't know. But, you know, I in my opinion, I think Kai Kamara coming off the bench, is it's definitely a wild card for Minnesota in this one. Yeah, we'll see. He hasn't had a, a big impact in the time he's been in Minnesota. His one goal is a penalty. Um, he's 36. You can see it when he's out there. You can see the age in his legs. But what he does so well is he will hold the ball for you, and he will bring other people into the play, and he will continue to make the runs that pull center backs out of position. You know, whether he has the legs to leap and keep at it like he always did before, Whole another question, but he's doing his purpose up there, which has been a really great thing to have coming off the bench. 
Yeah, I agree with you there. You need a savvy veteran like that to go out there and attack. I want to go back to Reynoso for a moment. Did you feel, like you said, most of the time they've been going up the flanks and crossing the ball in? Did you feel that that was a one need that Minnesota needed uh, to be attack-minded, not just to bring the ball up down the wings, but to bring the ball up in the middle of the park? Because, you know, if you've got a player like that that can dribble, that can pass, that can be creative in the middle of the park, you're going to be doubly, even triply dangerous than normal when you have someone like Reynoso in there and he can really take on defenses from oppositions. Well, the, the one thing they had not had at all since the start was a true number 10. Molino kind of tried to fill that role, but he's an outside midfielder and he's best when he's allowed to float. And if you can have somebody mm-hmm. in the hole like that, you know, the, the one thing that people will hold against Reynoso is he's not a goal scorer. And a truly great number 10 scores goals as well as sets them up. And that's the only spot he's lacking because his defense is very strong. You know, that, that recoverability. But to be able to bring the ball to the middle of the field and hit passes either direction, and, God, his passes are just beautiful to watch. They really are great. He has vision, vision galore. And this has been, you know, their number one hole since they got the defense settled last year. The number 10 spot is something, you know, that, they, that they've needed quite badly. And um, they've been able to fill a lot of other holes on this team, but that one did not come true until this summer. Yeah. No, and Minnesota right now is flourishing under that, and that's been very good. We've already talked about Kansas City. We know how dangerous they are. We know how great of a tactician Peter Vermees is, head coach, sporting director as well uh, for the club. Uh, There's just so many things, I think. I know Adrian Heath definitely wants to lick his chops and try and, you know, Knock a peg off on uh, Vermees, but still though, for you, sure, you gotta be for wary. Sure. You gotta be, yeah, you gotta be be very, very careful when you're taking on a Sporting Kansas City side that has been dominant for the last so many years. Well, if you got Ely and Espinoza in the middle of their defensive midfield, you know that they've had they're going to have like eight days of training to stop Reynoso, and that's going to be their focal point. And if they can do that, then. It's going to give other people in Minnesota the opportunity to step up and, you know, put their name up in the headlights. And so whenever a team focuses too much on one player, it leaves other people wide open. So we'll see what Peter Fermis decides to do. Um, He's always had good game plans against Minnesota. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, The two teams really go at it. There's been very few blowouts, but Kansas City, like I said, has completely dominated in Kansas City. But, you know, the, the one thing that I compare this game to in my mind, and I know it's completely yeah. different circumstances and all those things, but 2005 Open Cup, Minnesota went to Kansas City in the Open Cup and beat them 3 nothing, and advanced to the semifinals. That sounds very familiar to what's going to happen next Wednesday advance to the semifinals if you go to Kansas City and pull off the big upset. I like that. I like the ring of that. Absolutely. We'll see what happens. It should be a lot of fun. Bruce, thank you again, as always, for coming on the show. I'll definitely talk to you next time. You have a good evening. Thank you very much, and good luck. Yeah, you're the best. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. That's right. Happy Thanksgiving, Bruce. You have a good night. 
All right. Bruce McGuire of Denord in Minnesota. Minnesota United taking down Colorado Rapids three goals to nil. Joining me tonight, all the way once again from Seattle, of course, he covers the defending MLS Cup champions. It's Mickey Turner from The Athletic as he talks to us about the 3-0 victory by the Seattle Sounders over Los Angeles Football Club. Mickey, good evening, and how are you, sir? Sounds like an airplane. Uh, Let's try that again, if we can. So just give me a moment here. Can you hear me? Don't worry, Mickey, we'll get you. Oh, there you are. You, You hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, great, great, great. I don't know. I thought you were on an airplane or something. I heard a buzzing noise. I'm actually in my car. Uh, I am trying to navigate the Seattle commute, and hopefully my commute is less than an hour. There we go. Well, let's let's see if uh, that can happen. Uh, so, anyway, um, as I was going to say, uh, I'll tell you this much. 3-0, Rui Diaz comes up big once again, huge second half to score two goals, and you take down LAFC. I mean, Schmetzer has been unbelievable since taking over uh, as the Sounders head coach, and he's done some wonderful things. Yeah, I mean, he's in the middle of contract negotiations. Uh, you may have seen the athletic story that came out, oh, about a month ago, maybe three weeks ago. Uh, where Schmetzer was a little bit frustrated by the pace of the negotiations. Uh, I'm, you know, putting that aside, and I'm sure it'll get done to here, you know, sooner rather than later. Especially if he wins MLS Cup again, he's really just pushed all the right buttons uh, since his tenure, since he took over Brzezinski Smith halfway through 2016, um, and this year has been no different. Uh, they had a little, you know, especially in light of the kind of unusual situation that we all find ourselves in with a pandemic at all. Uh, but putting all that aside, uh, you know, they had a little bit of a blip uh, in early to mid-October where they were having trouble getting results, uh, and they weren't playing very well. But they finished up the season with a 4-1 thumping of San Jose, and that seemed to have springboarded them right into the, where they want to be and where they usually find themselves, which is peaking at the right time as a playoff approach. Uh-huh. Yeah, I got to say, that opening goal by Rui Diaz was absolutely magnificent. I have to admit, I couldn't believe he found a way to bend that ball around the defender inside the near post and make it 1-0. How in the hell did he do that? Well, you know, his his passing doesn't really get much uh, notice, although it'll probably get a little bit more now. Uh, yeah, that first goal was pretty amazing. Uh, it was started off uh, by Ladero winning the ball at midfield. Uh, Roldan heads it out to Rui Diaz on the wing, um, who then uh, just sends a perfect pass into Morris, who, you know, takes a good touch, sends it back to Ladero, who finishes it one time. Uh, you know, just take a look, you know, or just consider that Ladero was at midfield and then finishes at the near post. Uh, as you, as you, just the work rate on Ladero is just incredible. But, you know, again, Rui Diaz, ever since he's come into the league, has just, you know, he's been an incredible goal scorer, his rate. Uh, you know, he's got, I think, six goals and eight and eight assists in the playoffs or something something ridiculous like, like that. It may not be that many assists, but uh, 
just since 2018, halfway through the season, he joined the team and just never stopped scoring. Uh, he's worth everything that they paid to get him in uh, to the team. And if he's going to be throwing dimes like that to Morris and the other Sounders players, then it's really tough to see a team that is able to to stand up against them. And it'll really be about if the Sounders can hold their defense together uh, to keep the other opposition from scoring. Uh, but offensively, last night, they were pretty incredible uh, throughout the game. Uh, they started out on the right foot, uh, got the early goal, um, and you know LASC, who was a good team even with all of the players that are missing, uh, was able to fight back in the second half a little bit. But the Sounders were able to take control again when Rivas got the second goal, uh, and then uh, Morris finished it off obviously to give them the breathing room and the three-one, uh, you know, final margin. But yeah, uh, Rivas has just been incredible. The, his, his assist uh, on the first goal and then bending it, um, as you said. Uh, for his, his, his first goal, uh, just, just incredible, and he's just been uh, worth the price of admission, if we were allowed in the stadium, that is. <laughs> I know so, what you mean. I would have paid for that. I definitely would have paid for that. Yeah, and it's just yeah. been, uh, you know, their, their, their top three, uh, Spencer talked about this after the game, it, you know, and the top three at this point is, is obviously Reedy, Ladero, and Morris. All three of them get on the score sheet. All three of them had assists. Uh, and so it's just, again, if, if those three are on their game and are putting up stats, it's really tough to see how uh, any MLS team is going to be able to match up with them. Now, going to that second half, like you said, you know, you got like you said, you're giving LAFC credit, with so am I. How many opportunities do they have and how many of those opportunities nail the post or the bar? Because... Um, and let's also admit that, you know, Vela took a very poor penalty. I mean, I don't know yeah. if uh, I guessed correctly on that penalty he took, but I'll tell you, he, he stopped at the right time, bouncing around like a, like a jumping team, and was in the perfect position just to grab that penalty. I mean, I thought Vela just hit it or he just typed himself out. Yeah, it's a good uh, it's a good thought to uh, as far as you know what kind of happened there. Obviously, you know you know it should be said that Fry hasn't been a particularly great penalty stopper. Nowhere near obviously the level of a uh, of a Nick Romando or a Tim Melia. That's just not something that has ever really developed in his game. He's only saved you know a handful of penalties out of all of the ones that uh, he's had the opportunity to stop. Uh, and I, it looked to me that he decided that he was going to stand his ground and essentially uh, let Vela outthink himself. And I think that's what happened. Uh, Vela thought that Fry was going to make a, a, take a guess and go a particular direction um, because Fry was jumping around, as you said. And so Vela thought that he could, you know, I, it wasn't a panenka because it was hit too hard for that. Um, but it was just, a, you know, obviously a four penalty uh, under the circumstances, you know, those, those kind of penalties look terrible uh, when they get stopped because they're just like can't softly right down the middle. Uh, and so, you know, it may, you know, if Rye goes crawling to one direction, then it's, you know, it's a great, it's a great penalty shot by uh, Vela. But, you know, you know, with hindsight, you're, you're, you're looking at it and you're saying, yeah, that wasn't very good. And Vela, it wasn't particularly dynamic on the night at all. 
uh, you know, the Sounders set the tone early on him with a crunching cap tackle in the sixth minute from Shane O'Neill. Um, and beyond that, they mostly marked him out of the game. He had a couple of opportunities. Yeah, he did have a header uh, that he could have, put, he should have put on frame probably at least in, uh, I want to say about the 25th minute or so. Uh, but beyond that and the penalty, he really didn't do anything. And so that's two playoff games in a row where the Sounders have effectively uh, taken him out of the game. Oh, yeah, definitely. And just to see how uh, Schmetzer has worked his club very strongly in this one. It's just amazing how everyone is bought in, you know, even though there was a change from Ziggy to Schmetzer still, though, uh, he just keeps on rolling, keeps on going. And uh, I don't know, have you, has it almost equaled the amount of Open Cup titles now won by MLS uh, club championships. Is that two or three right now? Yeah, the Sunders are uh, right now two uh, uh, MLS Cups and obviously four uh, U.S. Open Cups um, and a Supporters Shield. So uh, if, uh, if Schmetzer's able to get this one, obviously hey, you're getting close to matching uh, U.S. Open Cups. Um, and so it's just been an incredible ride for him since 2016. Uh, it doesn't really show any signs of slowing down. It should be said that Dallas certainly gave the Sounders all they could handle and more in the playoff matchup last year, taking them to extra time. So uh, we should probably be careful before anointing the Sounders, uh, say, Western Conference champions, and to say nothing of MLS Cup champions, because you're going to get an upstart Dallas team uh, that's looking to spring the upset uh, and get a little bit of revenge for last year. So. Uh, a long way to go before even starting to really think about that. But certainly uh, three cups in uh, five years or four years uh, would be an incredible feat. Uh, I know. I don't want to put the cart before the horse, obviously. Um, you know, the Sounders team has really looked solid. And, of course, uh, you don't have to worry about Toronto anymore. They got eliminated by Nashville. Yeah. So that's one break for the Sounders, of course. <laughs> but uh, I got to say, though, I got to say that, you know, Seattle has looked very strong and very good these uh, last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. They've, uh, you know, even in 2018 when they went out uh, in the uh, in the matchup against Portland, you know, they uh, didn't lose the game uh, that uh, they got bounced out of. They lost in penalties, of course. And they, you know, they, there was an entertaining game, and they, you know, they played well. I don't think anybody would say that uh, they uh, they played poorly. Um, and then, you know, 2017, they ran into a Toronto buzzsaw that was looking for revenge uh, from the 2016 loss. Um, and then, obviously, last year they came back and got uh, got a bit of revenge themselves against Toronto. So they've been a very consistent playoff team uh, ever since uh, Smetzer took over took over the reins. Um, and again. Uh, the Portland series accepted uh, have always advanced pretty far in, in Schmetzer's tenure. And that was obviously a, uh, a significant uh, improvement uh, from their initial uh, run in MLS. Yeah, you know, the Sounders 1.0, if you want to say 29 to say 2013, uh, when they had trouble even getting out of the first round um, and never, and didn't make it to an MLS cup uh, during that time. So uh, yeah, they've, uh, they've had, uh, they've been on a good roll. Uh, Garth Largoway has put together a fantastic team, and uh, a lot of their pieces will be coming back next year and are locked up. 
so for the Sounders, uh, as you look forward to next year, uh, even though this year's not over, uh, you're just looking to basically supplement uh, where you can and deal with some of the uh, salary cap and budget issues that may come about uh, from having a team that's been so good for so long. Now, um, moving forward, obviously, you're going to be hosting FC Dallas. They're coming in. They're coming in hungry. They're coming in looking to uh, take down the Sounders. What differences have you seen from them than the last time you took them, you played them in the playoffs? Well, of course, the funny thing is that uh, the Sounders have not seen Dallas this year because Sounders pod was basically the West Coast and then RSL and Colorado. So they have next to no scouting um, on FC Dallas. And so that's going to make for an interesting matchup. Obviously, they are familiar with them in as much as that they've uh, had a bunch of playoff series against them over the years. Um, And Dallas has gotten the better of the Sounders, at least on one occasion in the playoffs in 2015 when the Sounders lost on penalties. Uh, But beyond that, the Sounders have have had Dallas's uh, number in the playoffs. I think they've won three of the four series that they've played against each other. Uh, So it's going to be a little difficult, I think, uh, at least initially for the Sounders to kind of get a bead on what uh, FC Dallas is, is going to do uh, because you've got to figure that FC Dallas is going to be happy to cede some of the ball and possession to the Sounders and look to hit on the counterattack uh, and look to essentially not make any mistakes and maybe play the, the zeros and get the extra time. Um, but, you know, you know, Dallas has got a bunch of young, hungry players, uh, and they're going to certainly want to spring that upset. And the Sounders have to be wary about complacency after you coming off of an emotional win, uh, as they did against LAFC. You know, the narrative around the LAFC uh, game was that uh, LAFC was looking for revenge, and we're looking to take it to the Sounders. Um, and, you know, Bradley versus Schmetzer, uh, the Stars were all out. Uh, well, not all the stars. Obviously, some of them were uh, were uh, not in the game due to uh, COVID-related issues. But you know, still the the names on the marquee are you know the pinnacle of MLS. I have uh, I think you have to say it at the moment. Um, and so, coming off of that game, uh, Sounders are going to be have to be wary about overlooking Dallas and thinking that they've got a trip to MLS Cup in the bag. Because if they do that, um, they're going to find out what Portland found out which is that Dallas uh, is a talented team, though young, um, and can certainly play the Sounders down to a and grind out a, a you know a result or maybe get something on the counterattack. Um, and then next thing you know, the Sounders are going home uh, well before most people think that they should. So we'll see what happens. Um, I'm looking forward to the matchup again. Um, it should be a good one. Uh, but you, you have to think that the Sounders uh, should advance. Uh, they, the, the talent disparity is, is – is, is pretty much all over the field uh, in favor of the Sounders. And then you also have the coaching experience and the playoff experience. Even though Dallas has been in the playoffs, they really haven't advanced uh, particularly far uh, you know, since, 20, you know, since 2010, essentially, when they went to MLS Cup and lost. So uh, you know, all of the advantages would seem to lie with Seattle. Uh, and you have to expect that in their current run of form, with their current attitude, they seem to want to prove a point. They want to defend their title. And so you're going to expect, you have to expect that they're going to come out uh, uh, with all guns blazing. Yeah, I agree with you there. All right, Mickey, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. You have a good night. Happy Thanksgiving. Stay safe and strong during the pandemic, and I'll talk to you next time, okay? 
All righty. Uh, anytime. Have a good, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. You too. Mickey Turner from The Athletic in Seattle. Sounders defeating uh, LAFC three goals to one as uh, they will advance to the semifinals in the Western Conference. Um, I have no one from Orlando coming over, but that's okay. 1-1 one, one draw through regulation extra time, and then that crazy penalty kick shootout. Talked about that shootout, of course. The, the, um, the crazy nuttiness of these rules that apparently MLS, the pro referees, U.S. soccer referees, missed. So they messed up. So it's a situation where they just got to get it right. Of course, early goals scored. Nani opened it up with a penalty to make it 1-0 in the fifth minute. And then uh, Maxime Chanot made it 1-1 three minutes later uh, with an assist from Jesus Medina. And that would be the end of that. Nothing in between that. Just a bunch of cards starting in the 70th minute. And then uh, uh, Orlando down to 10 men. In the rest of the way from the 87th minute, Ruan, uh, violent conduct, gets uh, ejected with a red card sent off. And then, of course, the whole Pedro Galisi situation in the shootout, in the fifth round of the shootout, where he makes a save, but he did not keep his foot on the goal line for the kicks. So he got ejected. He'll be suspended. Ruan will be suspended. And that's all you can really say or do about that one. The New York Red Bulls, of course, falling to the Columbus crew by a final of three goals to two. Now, if you want my opinion, and I try to be as honest and down the middle as possible, this entire season was not a typical Red Bull season. And I personally feel like whether they did make the playoffs or not, which they did, I personally felt that whatever happens, it happens, and that you just got to chalk it off to basically the pandemic, just throwing things uh, out of whack for them. They did play. They did play uh, attacking. They did well, mostly defense on, the, on the road, I should say. They only lost at least three matches on the road, one in the Bronx, one in Orlando, and one in Philadelphia. Everywhere else was either a win or a draw. They got points. Uh, at home, it was a little more difficult than normal, but at the end, towards the end of the season, they were able to get points, and they accumulated the points to do a little bit better. Um, and in my opinion, once again, I felt this was a uh, just a rebuilding year for this club. If the pandemic did not come, and if this pandemic did not uh, wreck their season a little bit, who knows what would have happened? Who knows if Chris Armis would have kept his job? We don't know. Um, but the truth is that Armis did lose his job. The truth is Armis was let go. They went to get somebody else. They brought over Gerhard Struber. Um, and I personally believe that move, even though it was a promising start to the match for the New York Red Bulls, Caden Clark scoring his third goal, uh, first playoff goal of the season so three goals in all competitions so far for Caden Clark on a great rebound chance bangs it buries it and then of course the Pedro Santos penalty that was converted um, in the 26 minute three minutes after Caden Clark scored and then just a big destruction 
from Columbus, Starlington Nagby making it 2-1, Giassi Zardes making it 3-1, Derek Etienne Jr. was able to uh, assist um, some of the goals, of course, especially the one from Zardes, who I don't know how he was able to leap up that high to head it past Ryan Mara, but he did. Jared Stroud coming in, showing some uh, technical ability, along with Mark Schakowsky, uh to make it 3-2 in the 90th minute. They tried to do it in stoppage time to force extra time. Did not happen. And for the New York Red Bulls, they fall 3-2, which is fine. I, I know the few supporters are not happy about losing in the playoffs, and that's fine. That That's fine. Um, but to be honest with everyone, I felt that Gerhard Struber coming into the club so late because of the um, the coronavirus pandemic that he had to do quarantine for a while. Um, and he couldn't really manage the club since he was announced. My feeling is that while, you know, if you feel like that, it's basically a wash. Fine. If you feel like it's not that, oh my God, we didn't make, we didn't go to MLS Cup final. We didn't. We have a problem, and all this and all that. That's fine. But in my opinion, I'm being honest here. I I'm not poo pooing it, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, I wasn't expecting them to go far at all in the playoffs. How dare I think that? I understand. But the truth is, is that I felt this was a different type of season. This was very different because of the pandemic, because not enough games, because. And all that. I mean, they did their best, but still, though, it wasn't enough. And I kind of expected it that way. If you heard me on my uh, Facebook Live pre- and post-game shows, uh, especially after that loss against the Union, I said this feels like a rebuilding year. And in some ways, it was. Now, Caden Clark, we didn't expect him to be a wonder kid out there. How he scored, how he put himself in position, how he played, he wasn't scared or nervous at all. And the goals he scored were just unbelievable, especially the game in Toronto at uh, Hartford. How he banged it, buried it, top shelf, upper, near 90. That was unbelievable. This kid's going to be a superstar. Now, I don't know how much longer he has with the New York Red Bulls. I have a funny feeling that Europe will be calling for him quickly. And, of course, we all know he'll be going to – uh, the Red Bulls Salzburg side over in the, uh, not Salzburg, excuse me, uh, I believe Leipzig in the German Bundesliga. Uh, it all depends on when he's ready to make that move. We'll have to wait and see when that happens. But still, though, he is going to be a great talent for the U.S. men's national team. Um, 17 years old, so at least we know he'll be available for the under-20s. For how many years, we don't know. But still, though, the under-20s are probably calling for him. I wouldn't be surprised if he does go to the Olympics if they give him the opportunity. Um, I think when Greg Berhalter opens up the MLS camp, I have a funny feeling um, that they'll use him, probably more as a substitute. If they use him as a starter, more power to them. I think he'll be great. And then you will see some of these players that play in MLS, play in Europe. They'll mesh together. They'll be at their best. And they'll probably do some damage. But Caden Clark is definitely a gamer. He's definitely the future for the club right now. And I love what I've seen from him. Brian White, I think he's been himself out of the doldrums finally. And he was finally able to score some goals. He looked fantastic scoring some of these big goals that he was able to do. 
Um, he's developing nicely right now. I think Tom Barlow at the moment is a little off, so he's got the sophomore uh, jinx on him at the moment. I don't think he'll be able to get three. He only has like three goals. So we'll have to wait and see with Tom Barlow. I'm not saying you got to get rid of him. I'm just saying that right now he had a sophomore slump. So I really believe that Tom Barlow is part of the future for the New York Red Bulls. Now, um, to Gerhard Struber, if I didn't say it, I'm going to say it right now. I had no problem with him being in the technical area. I had no problem with him uh, being on the bench with um, with Bradley Carnell, if you wanted to learn things, my problem is that I uh, you know, just going through uh, as I was going to say, um, I, I thought Bradley Carnell deserved to manage um, the playoff game. I, I really felt Bradley Carnell. But all I can say is, uh, all I can say is, is that it's just a situation that I, I thought it was a mistake. I thought it was a mistake. I, I, like I said, Carnell should have managed this playoff game. I thought he earned it. I felt that he deserved it to at least manage this playoff game. That's as far as I, I was going to say. Whether they won it or not, I don't know. But I felt that it was the wrong time for Struber to come and manage the club. He shouldn't have had one match. He should have started fresh for 2021. That's the truth. He stood of, He should have started fresh. I wouldn't have minded him being in the on the bench, watching what's going on, to ask questions with Carnell, even though he probably used him for that anyway. But in my opinion, I think Carnell deserved that opportunity to go out and manage that playoff game. I thought it was a mistake, and it should have been made. If it did work, okay. But that was only one match. If we would have gotten a second one, then you know what? That's fine. But still, though, that was a mistake on, uh, that I felt the Red Bulls made. You don't switch coaches because the guy you hired was not able to do anything due to the pandemic. Carnell should have managed that match. He did not. That's a mistake. I felt that's what it was. I know the players are putting a good spin on it, and that's fine. You, you, know, you felt you had a good a couple of days of, uh, of, of training and everything, but once again, Carnell should have managed playoff match. And then you move on. That's all I'm saying about it. Other than that, they tried their best. Columbus was definitely the better team. And that's all you can really say about this matchup. So for the New York Rebels, it's one and done. And they're going to now go full on for 2021. And now we're going to see what moves they're going to make, if they make any moves. Because um, we're going to have to find a way to see some Better players come over, hopefully, to help assist the younger players and have them play a lot better. Not saying they didn't play great, but they need to play a lot better. You've seen them switching off at the wrong times, and then they get burned. So that's all you're really saying about this. Other than that, great job by Bradley Carnell to get them back on track and to have them play in the playoffs. 
That's all you can say. That's all you can do. So that's what basically is out there for the New York Red Bulls. So let's go to the schedule now uh, for the MLS Cup playoffs for the semifinals in the conference. So we're going to go to the schedule right now. And here is the MLS Cup playoffs for 2020, the matches for the semifinals. Orlando City hosting New England Revolution, November 29th, Sunday at 3 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, This match will be seen on uh, ESPN, uh, ABC, the ESPN app, uh, ABC ESPN Deportes. So that's number one. Uh, that three o'clock Columbus Crew taking on Nashville SC at eight o'clock Eastern Time. That will also be on ESPN, the ESPN Deportes, ESPN Plus. December first on Tuesday, Seattle Sounders hosting FC Dallas. That will be on FS1 and Fox Deportes, the Fox Sports app. December the second, Wednesday at nine o'clock Eastern. Uh, Sporting Kansas City taking on Minnesota United, and that match will also be on FS1, Fox Deportes, the Fox Sports app. And then we've got both semifinals on December the 6th on Sunday at 3 o'clock and 6.30. And then, of course, the MLS Cup Finals will be seen on Fox December the 12th at 8 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, Whoever, well, we're going to have to find out who's got the higher seed in both conferences. So I want to thank my guests for tonight. I want to thank Drake Hills. I also want to thank Scott Henney. I also want to thank uh, Mickey Turner. I want to thank uh, Mike Kuhn, Bruce McGuire, and Sean L. Donahue, and uh, Mike Kuhn. My name is Daniel Feuerstein. Thank you very much for listening to me tonight, and as always, please, Enjoy your football. Join me on Monday for a regular ML, uh, excuse me, regular Forestings Fire show. We'll get you good guests and we'll help you have some fun. Take care so long and bye-bye for now. Have a good night, everybody.